Ignition sequence start. Six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Tower cleared. Welcome to Space 3D. We recently had the opportunity to interview individuals who conducted research, operated, or who served as research volunteers on the old Johnsville Centrifuge, a.k.a. the Dynamic Flight Simulator, which was located on the now-closed Naval Air Development Center in Warminster, Pennsylvania. Why, you may ask, is Space 3D talking centrifuges? Well, there is a connection. NASA used the Johnsville Centrifuge for training X-15, Project Mercury, Project Gemini, and Apollo astronauts, and a handful of space shuttle pilots. In part two of our interview, Human Factors researcher Barry Schender will discuss what acceleration, or G-induced loss of consciousness is, what the human tolerance is to G before losing consciousness, and how it was measured in the Johnsville Centrifuge. Once again, we'll also hear from some first-hand accounts of what it was like to experience G in the centrifuge from human research subjects Linda Lips and Steve Cloak. Finally, we'll discuss some of the many research accomplishments that helped us to better understand the effects of acceleration on the human body, all of which were conducted at the Johnsville Centrifuge. Barry, I'm, I'm wondering if you could describe for our audience a little bit about when we talk about losing consciousness and G exposure, what is the typical limit of exposure to G before someone can lose consciousness? And some of the, the individuals here who have just, you know, told us a little bit about what it's like to be in the, in the gondola talked about some different techniques that they may have been, you know, watching the light board was described. Can you give us a little bit of description about what that, basically what that was, and also a little bit about, you know, the maximum tolerance of G before you lose consciousness? Sure. So G tolerance is something that is different for different individuals. Uh, So everybody has a different tolerance to different types of environmental stressors. Typically, uh, you know, when you're, you're in your house, uh, you or your spouse wants the temperature to be higher or lower because your tolerance is different. It's the same thing with acceleration. So typically, if you are relaxed, which is what Linda was talking about, without any support, then you'll start to experience symptoms um, Depending on the individual, how fit you are, you know, somewhere between two, two and a half to three and a half times uh, normal acceleration, one G as you are on on the ground. Some people are are just have more innate uh, resistance. Uh, Typically, people who are more anaerobically fit uh, have higher. Uh, acceleration tolerance of those that are aerobically fit. What happens when you're exposed to acceleration is, as I was saying before, the blood starts to go down uh, from the top of your head down towards the lower parts of your body. And the experiences that you feel for that is when the blood pressure starts to drop. 
then you start to experience symptoms. And people can experience these uh, in different ways, but often what happens is you start to lose your peripheral vision. Uh, and this is because in your eye, your eye actually has a somewhat higher uh, pressure than the rest of your brain in, in order to keep it perfused. It's called interocular pressure. And as the pressure that's caused by what's called a hydrostatic effect, it's, it's like fluid pulling down out of a tube, starts to pull that blood out of your head. You start to lose your peripheral vision or things get hazy uh, or you, you sort of go gray all around. If that continues and you don't have 20 millimeters of mercury to keep your eyes open, then you can black out, which isn't losing consciousness, but you can't see. And then afterwards, you'll lose consciousness. So to combat that, Linda was, the other Linda was talking about uh, anti-jeep trousers or jeep pants. So what these do is they squeeze your calves, your thighs, and your belly, physically squeeze the blood back up into your head. That can give you another one to one and a half G increase in tolerance. Linda and maybe Steve was talking about doing an anti-G straining maneuver, and that's when you tense all your muscles up and increase the pressure in your chest by doing a respiratory and voluntary muscular maneuver. And that can actually increase your tolerance two to four times. So between the suit and the strain, Linda was talking about going up to seven and a half. You can tolerate that, but it's a lot of work. Mm. Now, what we do to, you know, see what these or track what these symptoms are, we can't see these. So when folks are in the gondola and we're spinning the heck out of them and they're having a, a roaring great time, <laughs> we're watching them through video. We're listening to what they say, but we can't tell what their symptoms are unless, of course, they lose consciousness, without them telling us. And because we're doing the research, we want to be able to get uh, a metric to go with that. So over the years, we've had different ways of sort of calibrating how much peripheral light you've lost. So there's something, there, there are a couple different kinds of light bars uh, in there. And you can imagine there's a light in the center right in front of you. Typically, that's red. There's a couple of lights on the side. Those are typically green. And when you can't see the green ones, then you've lost your peripheral vision. When you can't see the red one, you've lost your central vision. And that describes an arc of vision. So folks can tell us how much vision they've lost by how many degrees off the nose that they can't see. Can I add something about the G-forces to make you not uh, get knocked out? Sure. When I did the project, uh, the LOC project, they had three onset levels, two seconds, four seconds, and slow and painful. I forget exactly what it was, but it hurt. And the project was initially only approved up to seven Gs. And this is seven Gs with, you know, no G suit, none of these maneuvers. You started and at two, at after two seconds, you hit seven Gs or after four seconds, you hit seven Gs or after a really long time, you hit seven Gs and all the blood um, pulled in the back of your lower legs and hurt a lot. Now, after this pro after the project started, they were finding out that they could not get 
to the LOC at, at seven G's and they had to go back to whatever board approved this and um, get the G level increased. I know that I went up to 7.4 G's in order to knock me out. Other thing about the light bar, the other project I wrote, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, I wrote the light bar, it was all white lights, but they were tracking when we lost our peripheral vision because I agree, you lose your peripheral vision first and then you gray out and then you black out. And using the joystick, we had to track along our peripheral vision around the side as, as far as we could see. So it tracked all the way in there to when we uh, couldn't see anymore. So Linda makes a great point about the onset rate. So when we talk about a progression of symptoms from peripheral uh, loss of peripheral vision uh, or gray out and blackout, if we accelerate you fast enough, and one of the things that the dynamic flight simulator could do, which was different from other facilities at the time, was we could accelerate at an instantaneous rate that would get as high as 13 G per second, instantaneous. So if we accelerate fast enough, your body can't compensate in time. And you can go from sitting and smiling in the seat to unconscious without going through all of these symptoms. It takes, relatively speaking, if you were thinking about flying in a jet, it, it takes a while to wake up on average somewhere between let's say 25 to 30 seconds to wake up. But even after your eyes open, you're really not quite there yet. And it can take uh, seconds to minutes before you can start functioning again. Um, I don't want to jump on the moderator, but we knocked Steve out a lot. Yeah, you well, did. <laughs> I was, was going to ask Steve. I know Steve's written the centrifuge many times. I'm wondering if you can tell us about how many times you wrote that and what it was like for you to lose consciousness. I wrote it. The recorded ones I have are it's 135 times. Wow. It's uh, a bit over 85 hours. I also, I still do it today, but back then I was in way better shape. I, I did a lot of powerlifting, you know, a lot of squats, deadlifts. So while I was aerobically fit, I was way more fit anaerobically. So what Barry didn't tell you too is we did a lot of practice runs in there. So the more you're exposed to the high Gs, the more comfortable you get with it. I've always believed that it increased my G tolerance. So we could go in there. And we, in closed loop, dynamic flight simulator, we could, I mean, I got comfortable with, you know, we, if the, if the target we were tracking went to 10 G's, I would follow it. And I got comfortable with sometimes black, a lot of gray, but I knew I could strain back to somewhat normal vision. You get used to that and it becomes instinctive. You want to get in there and you don't want to, pass out. So the G-locks I had were, they were intentional. <laughs> we, we, we had to go in and what, one of Barry's projects was we were doing uh, incremental, like a quarter of a second, half second, three quarter, that, that kind of stuff. We were getting these high G impulses and we had to ride without a suit, without straining. 
we were doing everything we were never trained to do, right? Just go in there and take it. The G-Locks were, uh, we, were doing, we were, we were doing math too, right? We had, they were, you know, giving us, giving us numbers and you're doing math while you're, while you're spinning. And they would ask you when you regain consciousness, what was the last number you remember? But they didn't talk to you until they, we had this little white button down off to the left, real close to where our G-suits connected. When you came to, there was, it used to take me about four or five seconds before I realized there was, that I, A, had G-locked, and then B, there was this beeping sound. And then, then it all kind of was like, oh, yeah, I have to hit the button. So you hit the white button, and then they start talking to you. To me, it felt like, um, you know, I'd been anesthetized for a little bit and had taken a really comfortable nap. I was really nervous when, it, when we did intentional G-locks. I it just, it wasn't right you know, to me. It was like my body was saying, no, you don't do this. You're not supposed to do this. While the G-locks were interesting, I think the, mo- the weirdest thing that happened to me in there was during the incremental impulses, I, I experienced what, and Barry will probably talk to you about, it was an A-lock, an almost loss of consciousness. And I was awake, I was aware, but I couldn't do anything. And my left arm was flopping all over, doing things, and I could see it, but I couldn't control it. Generally, convulsions all over the body, but you couldn't do anything, just sit there. And I kept thinking a lot of the G-locks that were attributed to uh, Class A you know, fatalities I wonder how many of them were A-locks. Pilot wrote it in, fully aware of what was going on, but couldn't do anything. Mm. It was a lot of fun. Don't get me wrong, but that that was just, <laughs> for me, it was weird to, to go and do that. And for, the, for our audience, you know, you've heard a couple of terms being thrown around, like G-lock. That means acceleration-induced loss of consciousness. And A-lock is almost loss oh. of consciousness, which Steve, I think, described about what, what that was like. Okay, I'm going to ask the next question. Uh, now that we've talked about the different types of uh, losses of consciousness and also, you know, the different experiences people have had in the centrifuge, I'd like to ask about some of the major research accomplishments that were uh, learned, basically, or figured out from using the centrifuge. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Sure. I have to say, first, that we couldn't have done any of this without volunteers like Steve and Linda and Linda, because we couldn't get any of this done unless we had volunteers. There were a a number of things that we did uh, at this facility that were not really known. All right. So I I kind of mentioned this in the beginning. We really had no idea back in the late fifties and early sixties, just how people would perform and whether repeat exposures to acceleration would cause long-lasting deleterious effects. So by having folks that were willing to uh, do these sorts of things over and over again, uh, there's a lot of aeromedical uh, information uh, in terms of response, what to expect, uh, that came out of the work that we did there. The whole notion of consciousness and the spectrum of consciousness and how to counteract the effects of acceleration were 
determined by facilities like we had in, in Warminster, as well as other facilities that the Air Force had, for example, in San Antonio and in, and in Dayton, Ohio. But we had more capability with the 50-foot arm, uh, the dual gimbals, so we could look at the effects of different acceleration forces in different directions. So developing new types of energy protective equipment, uh, whether it was a pneumatic suit or a water-filled suit, looking at pressure breathing for acceleration or pressure breathing for G, uh, another way of helping to counteract the extreme work and fatigue you would get from doing the energy straining maneuver. Learning about the whole spectrum of symptoms and how pilots counteract those. Before Dr. Winery came to, and he was originally with the Air Force, but came to Warminster, we didn't have a program of standardized uh, teaching to how to do the anti-G straining maneuver. And folks did a variety of different things. They would grunt and so on. Uh, or dependent on their suit. But as aircraft got more capable, then the suit, as I mentioned before, just wasn't enough. So we developed a program at the time was called G-TIP, G-Tolerance Improvement Program. So we came up with a standardized way of teaching uh, aircrew. Uh, and we had folks come all over to Warminster, whether they were reserve, active duty, or guard, uh, air crew would come to learn how to do this. So there are a, a number of things, both operational as well as uh, aeromedical. And certainly from the space program, uh, we gave the folks at Houston and Cape Canaveral at the time the confidence to know the astronauts could withstand these forces, be able to uh, carry out the mission go through the launch sequence, and then come home safely. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Space 3D, and make sure to join us for our next episode, where we'll continue our discussion on the Johnsville Centrifuge. For Emily Carney and Tom Hill, this is Eleanor Rangers for Space 3D.